Seas of Caladan, O people of Duke Leto, Citadel of Leto Fallen, Fallen Forever. Hello and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season we will be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is Season 7, Episode 4, The Tooth, covering Book 1, Dune, Chapter 7 to 23. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan and I have only read up to this part. My name is Talia. I have read all of the books in the Dune series, as well as the Dune miniseries from a long time ago and the 2021 uh, film adaptation. My name is Priya, and I have read only up to this part, and I have seen the the recent film as well. Uh, my name is Amin, and I actually didn't read all of this because I only read to the end of book one, so um, I did not read the start of the next book, and I have seen both of the movies that were released in the last four decades. All right. Well, we did have some uh, stuff we wanted to follow up on from our discussion last episode. Uh, Priya, you wanted to talk about the blue eyes. Yeah. So uh, in the last episode, I was a bit confused as to whether you had to be a native of Arrakis to have the blue eyes and if it was something that was genetically just different in you. Um, but it seems that um, some point Paul says to Jessica in this section that she will develop the blue eyes. So the blue eyes seem to be a direct uh, result of uh, consuming the spice, I guess, over a period of time. So blue eyes seem to have nothing to do with uh, any genetic differences that the um, natives of Arrakis might have to um, anyone else uh, particularly the people from Caladan. And um, I think Talia can speak further to whether um, uh, Kynes is Fremen or not, or who is Fremen versus who isn't. Yeah, again, we got a little bit into it last episode, but maybe there was some ambiguity. Um, I think it happens again in this uh, in the chapters that we read for this episode, where there's this debate of whether or not someone with these blue inky eyes is actually Fremen. I think it might be Peter, uh, the twisted Mentat. And Jessica ends up making the assessment like, no, his his flesh is too fat with water. He's not actually a native, um, which means he bears some resemblance. Like he has the effects of the spice, but that doesn't make him a native. I suppose it might not matter too much whether you've like lived there long enough and can survive there or if you were born there. But when you know, Paul does have this realization in the last episode, the man's a Fremen. I don't think there's any reason to, to doubt him. Um, so I took him at face value and assumed that he was Fremen and sort of speaks in these riddles to avoid um, sharing that beyond a need to know. I think he says like, I'm accepted in Siech and in the city, which is another way of saying, yes, I am a Fremen, but don't go telling everyone. <laughs> Nevertheless, there was an action-packed um, series of chapters ahead, and I think Dan can read us some of the characters because it does fly by pretty quickly in this chapter. Yeah, I don't think we had as many as previous chapters, but there are a couple new ones that are introduced. With more confusing names. Oh, yeah. So we have uh, Sigo, who is a Harkonnen guard. Um, we have Kinnit, a.k.a. Scarface, who is also a Harkonnen guard and is deaf, but uh, seems to be pretty important. Um, the Sardaukar, who is who are just the Emperor soldiers. I think it's like a it's not a person. That's not their name, right? It's like a a group of or it's like their role or I don't know whatever it is. We have Uman Kudu, who is the who was the captain of the Baron's personal guard. Uh, Nefund, who is a Harkonnen guard corporal, who becomes the new captain of the Baron's personal guard, and Kornavashar, a Sardaukar from the Emperor's elite corps. So let's just uh, jump into the summary. Jessica is awoken by a drunken Duncan Idaho, accusing her of being a Harkonnen spy, to which Jessica immediately suspects Howard, but after speaking face-to-face, she's convinced that he is not the spy. Jessica's thoughts reveal that she's pregnant with the Duke's daughter, and not even the Duke knows at this point. On his way to speak to Jessica, Duke Leto finds Tuak has been killed, and further down the hall, he sees the Shadow Mapes, also near death, but before he can activate his shield, he feels a dart pierce his arm, and looks to see Yue would sabotage the generators. Yue tells the Duke that he actually wishes to kill the Baron Harkonnen and will install a poison tooth that the Duke will have to bite down on to kill him when he breathes out poison gas. In exchange, Yue promises to get Paul and Jessica to safety. Jessica awakens tied up as Baron Harkonnen and Peter stand over her. 
Peter was promised Jessica, but the Baron instead offers to give him a duchy of land on Arrakis, to which Peter agrees. Baron leaves the decision with what to do with Jessica to Peter, as to not have any culpability. Peter, also not wanting to take responsibility, orders Jessica and Paul to be taken to the desert for the worms. En route to the desert, Paul uses the voice to convince their captors to ungag Jessica. Jessica compels the guards to fight over her, and the deaf guard, Kinnett, is killed. Jessica further compels Zigo to let Paul go, so he can have Jessica to himself. While lured by her, he is immediately killed by Paul's expert kick to the heart. Yue is brought in to see the Baron to get his reward. The Baron reveals that he's killed Yue's wife and will let Yue join her as Peter stabs Yue through the back. Baron Harkonnen threatens Duke Leto with torture to find the location of Paul and Jessica, but Leto, remembering the tooth in time, bites down to expel the gas towards the Baron. The Baron manages to barely escape by activating his shield, but Peter is not so lucky and is taken out by the poison. Paul and Jessica hide out in a still tent that had been set up by Yue, and Duncan Idaho brings them to a location in the desert that he thought to be safe. Paul finds newfound cold clarity about his situation of his father's death, Yue's betrayal, and his responsibility as the new duke, and that it is the Fremen that are paying the guild in spice to ignore what is happening in the deep desert. Paul also tells Jessica that Leto never actually suspected her of being a traitor. Paul briefly starts to feel that he can see into the past and future through the experiences of people. He is angry at Jessica for selfishly designing him, specifically to be a male Bene Gesserit, and the Kwisatz Haderach. Paul realizes it's the spice that's slowly poisoning him and enhancing his senses. But he, like everyone else on Arrakis, will die if they were to ever stop taking it, realizing that he is trapped. Jessica tries to change the subject back to escaping the Harkonnens, Paul tells her plainly that they themselves are her cunnings. And what's more, Jessica is the Baron's own daughter. Paul realizes that his role is much greater than any struggle between houses, and as he contemplates the way forward, he prophesies that the Fremen people will call him Muad'Dib, the one who points the way, and finally gives himself the time for the death of his father. All right, so a lot of stuff happened in this one. So maybe we just start with uh, first impressions. After so much talking in different conference rooms this is a pretty like <laughs> bloody like assassinations left and right chapter. yeah yeah things happen fast and furious there <laughs> yeah it was it was definitely a much um quicker read for me this section because it was so much less focused on dialogue until the ending but of course, the ending dialogue was of a much different type than what we get in our previous uh, reading section. So I really overall enjoyed the amount of action and dialogue balance in this in this uh, selection of chapters. So yeah, it was really enjoyable. Yeah, I felt like it was like a, a good balance between like action and dialogue. But like, I felt like it actually like took me longer to read it because the dialogue was so like dense and it was dense filled with, like, yeah. and filled with like metaphor and like all this stuff like I felt like I was like missing something if I didn't like uh analyze every single word right <laughs> and like I had to like, reread it a couple times like as I was reading it like did I really get it what's happening uh so it was yeah it was I think it's a little more difficult for me to read this chapter than like the, the last chapter I think but not not that I didn't enjoy it it's just, like it was like mm-hmm. more more of an intellectual exercise to read this one than than the previous ones I thought the same thing. And part of what I did to let that go is I basically stopped trying to track all of the characters. And I think he does a good job of giving context to what the characters are doing and and what their motivations are, even if they come back, you know, chapters later. So I think that helped me a little bit is stop trying to keep all the characters and what they're doing in my, in my mind while I'm reading and just trust that somebody will explain it to me. And if not in the book, then that's why we have this podcast. (laughs) I would say you can trust the book. So even if you haven't been tracking this, a lot of it's bold underlined, like, hey, Jessica, you're a Harkonnen. And she's like, oh, some renegade family. No, the Baron, like the big bad guy that we've been meeting all this whole time, like line A to B. It's going to be spelled out for you. So you're allowed to let that fade into the background, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this this section um, they, they kind of called a lot of character. I think like the the dinner scene like had a lot of characters, and that was kind of 
that was kind of overwhelming to like keep in my mind like who is who especially with like no visual like because like in a movie you can tell or a tv show you can like see who's who by just looking at them right but then like the way they write it like he doesn't always say like this person said this or this like get to kind of like just track it in your mind of like who's saying what i think it did a nice job though of just building out the world a little bit more um yeah, yeah like yeah. we're not scrambling to keep up with so many characters we can sort of start to relax and see what's happening to them and i didn't include this in the list of characters but i think there's this concept that i would even add like the samuta it's another drug that we're introduced to and it doesn't seem to have a lot of impact it's just we're reminded where we're living in a world where there are these addictive drugs that entire swaths of the population um, depend on and they actually sometimes have good properties and have dangerous properties but like that's very much the world that dune is yeah that was uh that was knee food right or net food uh who was who yes was yes the or... one who's like promotion cha-ching straight into my yeah. arm <laughs> but then like the baron also is like he's gonna keep in his pocket his back pocket that you know he's addicted to it and so like if he needs to to use that the baron's always calculating even when he orders yeah. his mentat to you know kill yue he's like hmm so that's how he kills like so he swipes from the back with a knife. Right. I should watch out for my back for knife wounds, you know? Like he's <laughs> not to mention how annoyed he was when his own assassin got killed. He was so annoyed. Right. Yeah. He's like, uh, I was going to use him to like make people hate him. And he got killed already. Yeah. Actually, one thing uh, I, I forgot to put in the notes, but I did want to bring up was just the general impressions of Yue, right? Like they, they tried to like, uh, it, it felt like Herbert was like trying to like redeem him a little bit, be like, oh, he's not just a traitor. He's like actually doing it, you know, out of revenge. And like, but he's actually trying to be a good guy um, by by saving Paul and Jessica. Um, but so in, I guess in, in, in your guys' eyes, was he redeemed at all? Or is he still just like a, a traitor who is who's selfish? I have a quote for that. UA, UA, UA. A million deaths were not enough for UA. <laughs> June, a child's history of Muad'Dib. <laughs> no, there's some like uh, rankling discontent about the fact that this happened, uh, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a means to an end. And I mean, UA seems to say that himself. Like, you know what, Duke? Like, the fates are swirling around you. You are dead already. It just happened to be me. So... <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I didn't get too hung up on him what about you guys i mean it felt like he could have done more to like to save the dude but maybe he couldn't like you know like like you said like he he, he figured he was dead already from if it wasn't from him it would have been from from something else um but you know he mm-hmm. facilitated a lot he opened the shields he you know he drugged uh he drugged the duke and brought him to the baron so it's like you know he he, he didn't like try his best to like actually save him maybe he didn't want to uh, but because like he was like singularly focused on trying to kill the bear and he thought like that was his best shot i guess mm. but he's not very heroic right like he, yeah sure he he helped save paul and jessica but you know the at a pretty big cost of like destroying their entire family that's okay one one member down one member up she's pregnant right <laughs> but like every that's single perfect. guard is dead right or they're still in the caves or whatever so yeah uh, <laughs> yeah that, that is true so like even even if like Paul and Jessica and and Duncan Idaho and and maybe a couple of the other guys survive, uh, their their house is still you know not anywhere close to like the force that it was. I think what's so unfortunate is that I feel like in his with his level of wisdom, he should have assumed that the Baron wouldn't uphold his end of the deal, which is to keep his wife alive, and like when it's revealed to him that his wife is actually dead, it's just, it just makes everything for nothing that like he didn't have to become a traitor. And um, I think like he is aware that he is not going to be remembered kindly by history. And also um, there's something that the Baron also says that he could never trust a traitor, even a traitor that he himself had created. Mm-hmm. So, I think that it's definitely he's going to go down very dishonorably. And I think that despite having saved Jessica and Paul, his conversation with the Duke in those final moments sort of just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth for him that he wants the Duke to remember to use the tooth not for like to to kind of mercifully kill himself like to avoid torture and suffering but rather to um kill the baron as sort of like revenge 
for killing his wife. That's that's the sense that I got. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, he didn't care about the Duke, right? He only cared about like exacting his revenge. Yes, and thank you, Talia, for catching the pun in my um, <laughs> in that, with bad taste in your mouth. So, yeah, that um, I did not intend that, but I'll pretend that I did. <laughs> I, I wonder if it's like a like I don't know, like maybe like a spoiler, but like kind kind of. Yeah, I guess like all the like these these uh, front matter quotes have been kind of like spoilers that happens later in the book, but just the fact mm-hmm. that UA is remembered as a traitor. Um, kind of lends itself to believe that like the the Artridius family or the will come back in power, right? Or like they'll be the ones who are writing the history, because like there's, there's mm-hmm. a book. This book is being written by the the princess Uralon. By the victors, typically. Yeah. So like, if it was the Harkonnen, like we'd be like, oh, he's a hero for for you know capturing and killing, you know, bringing Duglito to uh to to our our glorious Baron, right? But now it's like now he's like a, he's a traitor. So just on that little note about spoilers, I had one uh, note to add before I think we have some more meaty discussion that Priya can kick us off with. There are these headers that do have the prophesying of the future or some prescience or, you know, characters that we haven't been introduced to yet, who we know, you know, are still alive. But just being that this is a movie and a book and a story and a concept that sort of defies being grounded in the present it has been called unfilmable and if you haven't believed that yet especially with the last episode being like oh a dinner party would have made more sense because it was hard to read about all these characters just this one passage i'd like to read try and imagine casting directing and filming this passage paul's mind had gone on in its chilling precision he saw the avenues ahead of them on this hostile planet without even the safety valve of dreaming He focused, his prescient awareness, seeing as a computation of most probable futures, but with something more, an edge of mystery, as though his mind had dipped into some timeless stratum and sampled the winds of the future. Abruptly, as though he had found a necessary key, Paul's mind climbed another notch in awareness. He found himself clinging to this new level, clutching at a precarious hold and peering about. It was as though he existed within a globe, with avenues radiating away in all directions. Yet this only approximated the sensation. He remembered once seeing a gauze kerchief blowing in the wind, and now he sensed the future as though it twisted across the surface as undulant and impermanent as that of the windblown kerchief. I'll stop here, but this goes on for several passages, and it concludes with Paul realizing the entire experience had taken place in the space of a single heartbeat. Yeah, and then Jessica is just sort of there on the side be like, you know, what? <laughs> and then the, yeah. all of a sudden it gets really, gets really mad at her. We have passages and passages, especially at the end of this um, series of chapters of Paul saying like, why is she so slow? Why doesn't she see it? That sort of dovetails with his becoming a man and him speeding up and all these uh, computations making sense to him. But they're very difficult even for the witness, for his mother to keep up with, much less to be an audience outside their world. It's very hard to imagine that being filmed satisfactorily. So hopefully it makes for some good literary expression. I certainly enjoyed it, but it's hard to imagine this taking place um, in a way that really penetrates. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Talia, because um, I actually typed out a note uh, about the movie the movie impression that I get of Paul and then I deleted it thinking it's a spoiler. So if it is, then please delete it. But I got the sense when watching the movie at a lot of moments, uh, cause I watched the movie before I started reading the book. So I got the sense that Paul is just really emo a lot of the times, but then when you are reading the book and you're actually reading the actual thought processes going on in his head, you're like, okay, there is more depth to him than, um, what comes across very often in, uh, the film. And that's precisely as you pointed out, the inability to film a character's inner monologue without having their be actual uh, voiceover inner monologue, which kind of becomes, I, I guess, too much exposition for a film at times. So, um, so yeah, I reading the book after seeing the movie, I have a much deeper appreciation for his character for sure. Is that the same for the other movies as well? Like that's it's. it's- 
it's really hard to kind of describe what's going on in his head for like the, the David Lynch one. Oof. You put a lot <laughs> on a, a means in my memory of this. Uh, yeah, I actually don't remember. I remember vaguely, vaguely that the Lynch was more plot driven, like mm. more things are happening and more lasers are flying. Whereas the um, 2021 is like, wow, look at this beautiful, you know, encapsulating scenery with a strong soundscape where I can forgive the many flaws of the movie because it's like so enjoyable to, to bask in. <laughs> There's a lot of emoting from Timothy Chalamet. A lot of emoting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> but not like you're not fig- you're not really hearing all the time what is happening in his head. That's why I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it to be a fulfilling movie to people who didn't know that like those three paragraphs I read are what's happening when he's pouting off screen. Like I know, but I can't imagine that being like something that clicks. Anyway, enough about that movie. (laughs) Um, I have more question about the movie. (laughs) Oh, well, Uh, I was only deferring because of your spoiler aversion. By all means, Dan, lay it on us. It's kind of like a, a question about about spoilers. Like, where does the movie end? Because I know that it doesn't cover the entire book. Does it end here, or is it, it does the is it continue a little bit further in the book, or is it not clear? A little bit further, I think. Okay. Like maybe a chapter or two. Oh, okay, okay. So after like next episode, I can potentially watch it with no spoilers at all. Oh yeah, yeah. I would say. Before the end of the next episode, we will have gone past where the movie goes. Cool. Yeah. So maybe I'll maybe I'll just like for next episode, I'll, I'll watch the movie by then. Mm-hmm. Yes, please just watch the movie, Dan. Please. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I like I said, I watched like the first like five minutes just to kind of get a sense of like how things looked, but the, I, I never got past. They didn't get to a racket. I will say. It, you know how some movies like play around with the chronology, like in the uh, Remembrance of Earth's Past uh, animation that you sent me, we were talking yeah. about how it like grabbed things from all over the various series and stuck them together. Like we yeah. opened at the end of book one and then invented a backstory for part of book two. Uh, the Dune movie, very, very chronological. So you could watch the entire like first hour and a half and it would be pretty much tracking. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but if you want to be completely in the clear, just read the next chapter and you'll be fine. Yeah, I, I was going to say there's probably like 20 minutes of the movie that we haven't read yet. So hmm. And they're all at the end. Yeah, yeah, they're all at the end. Yeah, they're not like sprinkled throughout. Cool. Yeah, well, next episode I'll I'll probably see the movie then. Um I I wanted I do want to get back to Paul. The, the, I had a lot of I don't know, I had a lot of strange feelings about him and his his like sudden attitude change. Um, and this is going to be spoilers. I'm sure that you guys aren't going to be the answer for me. Um, but as kind of like, as I was reading it, it just like really struck me how, like how much he changed. Um, and, uh, how like, you know, normally, like before he had like this, this, uh, this personality of like, he, he, he knows he's coming into power and he's like, you know, he's training to, to do what he can. Uh, he doesn't really understand what's happening all the time you know, with like the the test in the beginning and that kind of thing. But then like at the last chapter, like he just totally changes and his personality seems to totally change. And into like, I, I don't have a really better way to describe it. It's like, he seems like robotic uh, because like, and he keeps talking about calculations and computations. And like, he, he t- keeps talking about like, he can't feel anything anymore. Uh, and he talks about like, uh, like Paul's mind had gone on this chilling precision, right? Like, everything seemed very mechanical and robotic in the descriptions of like how he's thinking about it. And obviously you guys can't tell me, but like as to put a pin on it for my, my unspoiled uh, knowledge of this book is like, I think something's going on where the, there's something to do with like some kind of AI or computer based or something like that. Like it seemed like maybe he was constructed. Maybe that's how Jessica is able to make, you know, make him a boy versus a, a girl. Cause maybe like there's some mechanical Something mechanical there. Anyway, these are my wild theories. I just kind of want to put it out there. But that the the way that the language there in, the, in this pa- in the last chapter specifically really struck me uh, as is very deliberate by Herbert. I think. Anyway, that's my rant about Paul. I, if you guys can say anything, <laughs> or, but like I know there's there's probably stuff you can't say. Well, I I wouldn't I wouldn't really 
know what to say to that in terms of like spoiling via negation or confirmation. Sure. But um, I I will say that I I kind of got a very different sense of Paul in in this chapter uh, than what you're describing to some degree. I. Th- didn't feel that he was being robotic at all. I got the sense of someone very human who is experiencing a great deal of shock and this awareness of too many things at once kind of um, uh, overwhelming his senses. And all the while, he seems very aware of the fact that he is not feeling the right emotions that he should be feeling and that some change has come over him where he is hyper-focused on very precise computational sort of ideas. This awareness seems to be in his mind as he is experiencing it. And he is puzzled at times, it seems, even with his own behavior and mannerisms. And he is kind of disturbed by the fact that he can't feel the adequate grief and why he is not feeling it and why he's acting cold towards his mother. It seems like this awareness is in him. So I think that he is behaving in a very normal way that I would expect someone who is in shock to behave. And then on top of that, there is something very tangible that has just happened to him that has sort of um, forced all of this to come bubbling to the surface. Um, there is literally this flight or fight thing that has come over him, this uh, suddenly being thrust into a scenario where it's all about survival that, ha- that he has been thrust into. So I think that the way that he is processing is the way that anyone who believes for a long time now, we've seen him say this for a while, even before he is thrust into this scenario that he is burdened with this terrible purpose and that keeps coming back to him. And now it seems that he is suddenly understanding what that terrible purpose might be. So I think that his behavior sort of, um, sort of tracks for that awareness having come over him. Yeah. I mean, at the end, he also understands like the like the petty fights between like the houses and that kind of stuff like doesn't really matter like the yeah he has like some much larger purpose and like just the fact that he can like see the entire past and the entire future you know all through like the the people the people's experiences like must be a lot to process i also thought that when i was reading it like maybe it's a shock you know he's he's he really is he's he's the duke now right and so that's like a whole level of responsibility but like just like some of the quotes that that i kind of picked out like just have like really really like kind of mechanical or a computational you know language like cold precision yeah cold precision or datum uh or minutiae or computing on minutiae he has like uh he felt the he felt the inability to grieve as a terrible flaw chilling precision those kind of those kind of words like just it it seems to repeat over and over and over again where it's it reminded me of like data from like Star Trek or something where you can feel emotions. Uh, and you know, maybe that's just biasing my, uh, my opinion, <laughs> but that's, that, that's what I was thinking as I was, I was reading it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't feel like he was in shock. I felt he was, yeah, I just felt he was emotionless for just, and he was just emotionless. Cause even in, not to keep talking about the movie, but even in the movie that, uh, whatever his name is, Timothy Chalamet doesn't really show a lot of, a lot of emotion he's very he's very level throughout the whole thing so i think i just assumed that was the state of his character not something else i wouldn't say it's a spoiler but i would go back to the first episode we did in caladan when he's um speaking to the reverend mother she's like sort of playing toying with him before the test and he quotes to her like thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind um, from the Butlerian Jihad in the Orange Catholic Bible. So there's clearly yeah. like some prescription in this society against, you know, thinking machines. So if he were, you know, synthetic in that way, that would be clearly a, against a jihad, like a pretty big abomination. Um, yeah. Remains to be seen. I mean, he is a 15 year old going through a lot of changes. Yeah. 
And just the fact that like, they had to like find if people are human or not, like maybe, maybe he's not human. I don't know. But the, there's something happening. I think that that's my my impression anyway. There's like just the language seems too um, too deliberate to to be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. D- deliberate and repeated to be a coincidence to me. Oh, I guess we'll see. We'll see. Okay, Priya, do you want to talk about your quote? Yeah, sure. So um, I think it ties in actually to what we've been talking about with Paul and um, why my analysis of his behavior differs a little bit. Uh, And it also kind of harkens back to what we talked about initially with our first impressions. Um, I think that it is, for me personally, it is a lot easier to read metaphorically um, or cryptically loaded passages like the conversation between Jessica and Paul more so than it is for me to read political conversations. Like I realized this when we were reading uh, Foundation and I realized this during the, um, the dinner scene in the earlier chapters that we read. I find those types of conversations so tedious, but if something is like metaphorical and just kind of cryptic, I really find myself enjoying that. So a portion of the conversation uh, between Paul and Jessica that um, stood out to me uh, was, uh, and I'll read it. The Fremen have a saying, they credit to Shai Halud, old father eternity, he, Paul, said. They say, be prepared to appreciate what you meet. And he thought, Yes, mother mine, among the Fremen, you'll acquire the blue eyes and a callus beside your lovely nose from the filter tube to your still suit, and you'll bear my sister, Saint Elia of the Knife. If you're not the Kwisatz Hederach, Jessica said, what? You couldn't possibly know, he said. You won't believe it until you see it. And he thought, I'm a seed. He suddenly saw how fertile was the ground into which he had fallen, and with this realization, the terrible purpose filled him, creeping through the empty place within, threatening to choke him with grief. So when I'm reading this passage and a few of the passages surrounding it, um, where he makes these revelations to Jessica, um, so he's thinking a lot. There's a lot of things simultaneously going on in his mind and he's not able to show the right emotions, but he's just processing and sort of blurting out all this information. I see him as someone who's trying to make sense of both clarity and confusion that exist in tandem within him. So his confusion is over his emotions, but he has this newfound clarity of who and what he is and his purpose. Uh, Throughout this chapter, he seems to speak in riddles that elicit more questions from us in particular than they answer, and even from Jessica. So, um, and Paul is often confused as to why she's confused and she should know and understand better according to him. And we, as the reader have also been led to feel the same in this moment. We also see him becoming more aware of himself. And at the same time, he's becoming more estranged from himself, like from his emotions and the child that he was and the emotional being that he is and should be. And um, there, while there's an increase in the self-awareness in terms of purpose and bigger picture things, there's a greater detachment from the self that he was and the self that probably still he retains within him. Uh, that should feel the grief of his father dying in so many ways reading the book versus watching the film like I said didn't give me the sense of who Paul was that this passage and his conflicting emotions and lack thereof sort of reveals to me and we do see him by the end of this chapter shedding tears for his father once he has sort of processed everything that's going on in his mind he realizes now I can mourn my father I think like one thing that's that's pretty interesting that a point that you brought up um, a little bit earlier was the yeah Paul's disappointment in, the, in his mother um, like not being able to understand like what's going through his head and like earlier and like in the beginning part of the chapter it seems like Jessica has like almost superpowers like she's like almost boasting to uh, to Howard about how he can she can control the Duke to do as you know, she wants and like yeah and we see it in action too yeah she's trying to like intimidate him be like you don't even know what I can do. <laughs> uh, and then like later on, that's like flipped on this head, right? Like, uh, like Paul thinks that he, he can do all the, that she can do all the stuff, but like 
you know, then he sees like that, you know, she's actually like really limited you know, to, to what, where he's at. Exactly. I think she says like, you've now glimpsed the fist inside the glove. Right. Like that right. thing that just put you in your seat. That was just a glimpse. And I feel like we get reversed on that. And now we see her like how I, like how do you do that on the outside? Because there's so much potential in Paul that I don't think even Paul himself has fully realized. He's just really at the, at the very forefront. Yeah, Jessica definitely knows what she can do, but yeah, Paul does. For sure. <laughs> yeah, he, he's kind of like like awestruck by like the that one second episode, right? Where he like he sees like the entire like past and and, and future. The the quote that, that you read earlier. Yeah, but he can't even pitch his voice down low enough to use the voice. He has to use his right. one attempt. They like listen to my mom, yeah. <laughs> not like yeah. do what I say. <laughs> I, I think there's very much this feeling in this uh, interaction between them that uh, that feeling that uh, you get when like the student sort of surpasses the teacher in a sense um, yeah. or becomes more than what the teacher might have intended them to be in a sense you know Jessica is his teacher she's teaching him the way of the Benny Jesuit and she had this concept in her mind of what he would be and he sort of has transcended that and that's sort of thrown her for a loop because she doesn't quite understand now because there was this one idea in her mind and now there is the reality of what he is and it's much more elusive and ineffable than what she could have imagined so I, th I think that that is really interesting to see play out because she, up, and, up until this moment, we see him as the child and the one who is probably incomplete in his training, but perhaps that's not his purpose. What Whatever she was training him for is not entirely his purpose. It seems that his purpose transcends that. So it's it's a dynamic that I feel both of them were kind of unprepared for. And not to mention, like, he resents her for doing it, right? Like, he talks about, like, he gets really mad at her for, for kind of using him to just fulfill, like, her goals. Right. Poor Jessica, because the Benny Jesuits are mad at her because she bore a son. And now Paul is mad at her because she bore a son. Like, they both think that she was selfish. You know, the person who'd appreciate her is now dead. It's like, it's a rough right. place to be. <laughs> right. And we also see this passage where he kind of blames her for all this awareness that he has of these things that he would probably be maybe more sane if he wasn't aware of. <laughs> That's interesting. And I think we'll just have to hold on to that or else I'm afraid of getting a little spoilery. I did want to mention just before we have any concluding thoughts um, about the Baron Harkonnen, because we see more of him, unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> in this section. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was like I thought he was like pretty interesting and like the like like the getting more the, like yeah like the, we talked about before like his scheming uh, around and like you know really observant around the, the you know the way that that Peter murdered uh, UA and that kind of stuff but then he gets into the thing like later on where he's talking about he wants to get like a some comfort or what well, I, I forget what he said like the actual words oh. but like it because because the the person that he wants comfort from is it looks like Paul it's like ugh. <laughs> yeah he has him to go. <laughs> go fetch that little slave boy and like drug him heavily um but it made me wonder about the baron himself because he seems his idea of the royalty is very precious like he clearly thinks a lot of people just because they're highborn and he's like annoyed that he has to torture the duke and thinks it sets a bad precedent like oh i shouldn't even be seen to like torture the duke the only thing that is making it okay is because i know it's a conduit for more power to me but i'm wondering if that is somehow feeding into his desires that otherwise would just be pure incest um yeah it's, it's his grandson right <laughs> so yep who knows yeah. if it's known to him it might not be known <laughs> to him either another interesting thing is like he's really um He's really insecure as well, right? Like, well, he's paranoid. Yeah, when the emperor's person comes there, and he's like, "Ah, oh, they're gonna see the room, and like, I'm gonna get in trouble with the with the truth." I'm really excited for that quote to come back. There's something that will shine more light on that in book two. But yeah, the Sardaukar is taking no excuses because the Baron's like, "Oh, well, the Duke is dead," and he's like, "Okay, how?" by his own hand. Let me see. Right. Eh, in a minute. Like, no, let, let me see right now. And I thought that right. was really 
there's just no nonsense accepted. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, hopefully we get more from the emperor side as well. Like, you know what, I mean, like, I don't know if it's just purely just a money play or a power thing, or like maybe he had a grudge against the uh, leader. He has been skulking uh, around in the background, you know? Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of the emperor. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know like what his motivations are. I'm, I'm not sure that we'll get it, but um, you know, some, something must be, it seems like the whole time he's conspiring with, with the, with the Baron to, to kind of make this happen. Right. Like, um, so why, wait, like, why, why did he set up the, 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 the Duke leader to fail? Um, and, uh, you know, for his house to get wiped out, basically. So I'm, I'm interested to know more, more about that later on in the book, hopefully. Also, can we take a moment to appreciate this very grotesque, visceral sense you get from the descriptions of the of the Baron, he's pretty disgusting. And yeah. that's one, that's one thing that I appreciate from the movie is, you know, the visualization of that, that I had in my mind from before reading the book. But I think that the book just standalone does a pretty good job of giving us this kind of really icky sort of feeling every time you get descriptions of the Baron. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he can't even walk on his own because he's so fat with the, you know, he has to have the suspensors to kind of hold them up to even like maneuver around. <laughs> yeah. Like I, you get, you get a really sense, you get a sense of like some really disgusting person and like, you know, his personality just makes it even worse. Yeah. The description in the book, it, it doesn't describe him like this, but I thought of like Jabba the Hutt where he just kind of, yeah. you know, a big lump <laughs> yeah. sitting there until somebody helps him. <laughs> right. Yeah. If Jabba the Hutt were like on strings, like and you know, moving them around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like twice, twice in the, like while all these events are unfolding, like there has been literally an assassination attempt on him with the poison gas, but he mentions like, I'm hungry after that. And then he wants a distraction from like the stuff that's going on around him. And even before, while he's about to interrogate the Duke, he's also mentions I'm hungry and he's busy yeah. eating and is not aware of like, you know, what's going on around him. So yeah, it's like if he wasn't so terrible, he'd be almost comical, but <laughs> terrible. So, wasn't yeah. that what is like one of the things that he was also afraid of the the Sardaukar seeing is like the food in there? <laughs> I think he, he mentioned that he was like, oh, he's going to go in there and he's going to see the food there. He's going to know. So another, another thing I noticed was like just more things from from Jessica, like talking about like how she's like seems to be more and more ingrained in like the the Arrakis culture and like keeps talking about like water and like seems to be really concerned about. Um, about losing water and like preserving water. Um, she, she thinks it's a waste when one of the Harkonnen guards gets killed. It's like, ah, uh, like he's bleeding all over the place. Like what a waste of, of the water. Could have used that. Uh, and then even when she's crying over the Duke, she's like, ah, oh, this is such a waste of water. Why am I bothering crying? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's pretty interesting how, you know, she's like so quick to, to ingrain into the, the culture of, of preserving water. I mean, they've only been there for, it feels like a very short time, right? Like a week or two. Um, you know, maybe or a month or something like that. What did the guy say in um, the guy on Bronze Age when he was being tried in Death's End that like it only takes five minutes for oh, yeah. men to convert <laughs> from yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. what they were to <laughs> new a new race when they're faced with these conditions? And I think that's sort of what Arrakis does. It's like this, you know, such an extreme extreme environment i think it's even at one of the headers it's like you uh, it's a uh, necessary for your psychic defense to undergo these uh difficulties um i think it's really just crystallizing people down to life and death because water really is life and death there it also kind of evokes in us uh this reminder and awareness that they're out in the elements now like they have not been before so all this um all this knowledge that she has gleaned from um, people like uh, the Shadow Mate and any uh, anyone who's a native of Iraq is basically just being appalled by any waste of water um, has sort of instilled in her mind this this thing that she now truly understands now that she is herself out in the elements that the only thing and she comments on it later the only thing really keeping them alive is, are these still suits um that are enabling their survival because the amount of water that they would need without the still suits is an amount that they would not be able to obtain or find so or even carry it's like a staggering amount right like five liters per day or something like that 
just to sit in the shade and not move. Yeah, exactly. Right, which which they would not be doing because they're on the run. So, yeah. So they kind of just, they kind of just throw in like the concept of a still tent. I didn't quite get what that is. Like, it seemed like the still suit was like a really important, you know, in a an advanced piece of engineering by like you know doing heat exchange stuff and you know reclamating the the water yeah. and doing all that stuff. Like, so how did they expand that to a tent? <laughs> I didn't get that part. Imagine a suit, like and now turn it into a tent, Dan. but like like the whole point of the still suit was like it's like right against your body right so it's able to take all that perspiration and like reclimate it into uh like portable water right uh so i don't want to get too gross but i think it's a swampy little cocoon to be honest (laughs) also i think someone was it kinds who mentioned way back in an earlier chapter that the most water that you lose is was it from your palms or something and you said that yeah, oh, and, yeah, and so maybe the tent preserves even that water that you're losing off your palms, maybe. I think the idea is that you have the tent on, but you still have your suit on. You're not like mm-hmm. one or the other. That was my take on it. A closer read may disprove that in the next chapter, but we'll see. Double the water preservation. <laughs> It seemed, yeah, it seemed just like a normal tent, right? With like a window on it <laughs> that just, that saves them. Like, Cause they said, he was saying like, you know, they could stay there near the day, but they have to move at night. Um, I just didn't get what was so special. Maybe he's got anti-worm pheromones on it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, man, maybe it's something to do with the worms because they can't use shields, right? So yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Yeah, I mean, also speaking of that, like the the kind of revelation that the, the Fremen seem to be a lot more intelligent and advanced than than they seem to be previously because it, it kind of seemed like they're just like the locals and like they're kind of you know the they're just like servants and like they're you know they're they're kind of shelling you know what they're 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 selling water on the street it seems like they're kind of like like the let you know the native population that's taken advantage of by by these like the harkonnen or the the atreides family comes in there um you know the, the rich people come in and take over the land it really seems like the fremen have like a lot more going on that you know that maybe is happening in deep in the desert so that's that's another interesting thing for for me to to kind of keep an eye on like how that advent, how that kind of shakes out priya do you want to talk about your the last quote you have yeah i think that in addition to the big revelation which was that um jessica is the baron's daughter um i think another sort of big revelation was that the spice that we've been sort of seeing in a pretty positive light so far because it's almost like this this life improving health improving substance at least that's how i had been seeing it based off of the way it's spoken of because it's like almost like sacred right it got this uh sinister aspect to it that Paul reveals. And um, that's also when I was talking earlier about how he's almost blaming Jessica in that moment for the fact that he has this awareness that normally the spice would sort of shield you almost from that awareness of what exactly it's doing to you. But he can see what it is. And he says, it's a poison so subtle, so insidious, so irreversible. It won't even kill you unless you stop taking it. We can't leave Arrakis unless we take part of Arrakis with us. And then he concludes that what it basically means is that they're trapped here. And Jessica also seems to come to that understanding. And she accepts the truth of his words. No pressure of the Bene Gesserit, no trickery or artifice could pry them completely free free from Arrakis. The spice was addictive. Her body had known the fact long before her mind awakened to it. And Paul just keeps impressing upon her that I can see it in a way that all the other people here, the natives of the land, they're not able to quite see it the way that he can see it, what it's actually doing to them. and. It's it's kind of like almost like a reverse of what you'd expect a drug to do. It kills you if you stop taking it. So that just it's it's a very dark revelation about the spice that I found very interesting that it's a poison, but it's a poison if you stop taking it. And it also keeps them pretty much bound to the land. Yeah, they even talk about like if they left they had to bring it with them, right? They they can't leave. <laughs> in the, like basically for the rest of their life. Um, they're they're going to be hooked on on the spice to to live. Yeah, and it's it's just kind of interesting again that Jessica is kind of coming to an awareness of things that she may have subconsciously known, but really not 
been so aware of through Paul's awareness of it. So it's it's a lot. Like there's a lot of of information being exchanged between them in this chapter. And it's like as as the reader, I can sense the amount of the the degree to which both are overwhelmed. Like on the one hand, they've just lost the person that they love most, which is, you know, his Paul's father, her her partner. And now all this stuff is coming out. I mean, it's got to be a big blow to Jessica to find out that one, she's trapped here, two, her partner's dead. And now she learns that the Baron is her father. And she also learns that Paul is something different and beyond what she could have envisioned. So it's a lot. And she's pregnant to boot. <laughs> right. She's pregnant too. So, Good point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like first and foremost, she's pregnant. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely like a big, big life altering couple minutes there for, for, for her. Yeah. I mean, I wonder like why Paul can, can see that, that like why no one else can see that they're, that they're kind of addicted not not even addicted but like their their life depend on having the spice like maybe the do the fremen even know that you know or do they just think it's okay i don't get the sense the fremen do a lot of off-planet tourism i don't think it comes up yeah yeah i mean yeah i guess so but i wonder you know like they the, the they, they're definitely more advanced than than we that we've been given them credit for or i have been given them credit for so maybe they, they do who knows what's happening in the the deep desert right Maybe they have exactly. uh, spaceports and stuff <laughs> to control their planets with spice. Exactly. Thank you for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes and the reading list. And leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. Please join us next episode for season seven, episode five, covering book two, Moadib, chapters one to six of Dune by Frank Herbert.